0: Climate crisis will affect bees and other pollinators in a variety of ways, not all of which we know of yet. Today, I'd like to talk about one situation that has affected a number of countries this winter, and that's excessive rainfall and flooding. We know this was serious on many levels, but just how does too much rain affect wild and native bee species? Joining us today is Dr. Philip Donkersley, senior researcher and teaching associate at Lancaster University in England. He specializes in interactions between insects and their environment from a variety of perspectives, studying how the environment, both physical and biological, interacts with pollinator physiology. Philip, thanks so much for being here. Let's get to it. Spring is typically a very vulnerable time for wild bees. How do wet winters affect them?
1: So these longer, wetter winters, they have a number of things. If you have a Wetter winter that often implies it's also a warmer winter. the drier winters with the cold air keep everything crisp and frozen for all these wetter winters that we're typically seeing these days, they also imply a warmer winter. there's more nutrients being washed around because of the rain, there's more warmth and biological activity, and it's, it's not just the wetness, it's also just this disruption of the natural cycle of the seasons. So when you have that happening, you inevitably end up with the first problem, which is being everything wakes up too soon. So all bees, honeybees, bumblebees, solitary bees, they're inactive during the winter months because there's no food around. So they have evolved to hibernate over those months. That's part of the reason why these bee species secure stores of food. And when you have these warmer, wetter winters, you end up with these bees emerging sooner because. Plants are getting going, they can sense through the increasing warmth that the plants are going to be going. So they'll go out and they'll secure food and they'll go out and get things like ivy and dandelion. Even now there are some heathers that are back in flower already. So the bees will go out, they'll get these foods and they'll start ticking up. They, they'll start increasing their population, they'll start becoming more and more active. And that's great until the rain comes back on rainy, wet days, bees typically don't fly, so they'll stay inside their nests and they'll hunker down and consume what stores they have. Now, these bees, they spent the whole winter collecting those stores or consuming those stores. they haven't got much left, they get the signal that it's warm enough to go outside to forage. They'll start building up again and then they'll go out, they'll get some food, they'll come back. There'll be a little bit of stores inside their hive for them to eat. And then the rain comes. They don't go out, but they haven't recovered from the winter yet. So if there are these long, extended periods of rain, it's stopping the bees from getting out. It's forcing them to re- to consume stores they haven't yet properly recovered over past over winter, and they end up basically starving to death inside their hives during the rainy seasons. The other thing, of course, that happens is if the rain is quite as heavy as we have been seeing in recent years. And particularly in pastoral agricultural systems where like large cows, sheep, goats, what have you, are trampling across wet, muddy fields. They are then killing off any flowers because the flowers can cope with being stood on. They can cope with being rained on. They can't quite cope with everything all at once. So all this lovely food that may have been going, it's getting destroyed by the rains as well. So it's it's a double whammy effect, isn't it?
0: So we have our wet winter, following into our wet spring. What relief can we hope for the bees?
1: I mean, one of the things I really love when I was talking about the house sensitive field flowers can be wildflower strips. We plant so much in the way of wildflowers, don't we? That's one of the main things people think we can do to protect bees. The only thing you can do is not the only thing you can plant, and you know it's really quite resilient to heavy rain and being stood on are trees. If you end up planting trees that flower, typically trees flower for longer periods of time than wildflowers. They're also far more resilient, and they can avoid this one aspect where bees will run out of food. Another thing, it's it's a bit of a sore subject, I guess, with some land managers. Ivy. Ivy is a wonderful plant. It flowers basically from December through to May, which is exactly the time when we need to produce lots of food for bees to recover after winter. And obviously, people don't, not everyone likes ivy. People think it can damage masonry, which is not true. People think it can kill trees, which is again not true. So we end up with people cutting the stems at the base of these beautiful ancient ivy plants that have this symbiotic relationship with these very old oak trees. And if we could just stop that, <laughs> Protect our ivy ivy plants, protect our ancient woodlands mm-hmm. better, uh plant more forested areas, have the potential to provide more food for bees, and be smarter about what kinds of trees we're planting. Thinking about seasonality of flowering when we're planting trees, just as we think about seasonality of flowers when we're planting flower strips. So I, I think a combination of things like blackthorn, willow, hawthorn, oak, and some sycamore species. And maybe a bit of horse chestnut for the bumbles. That all combines to a very nice, nearly constant flower provision for wild bees of all kinds.
0: Even when it's raining.
1: Even what? They don't get damaged so much when it's raining. Yeah. But the bees stopping flying when it's raining, there's nothing we can sort of really do about it. It's just that there is some argument, I guess, for rapid evolution from wild pollinators in response to these changing environmental systems. But we haven't seen that in other organisms like even things like blue tits being synchronized with winter moth caterpillar emergence they lay their eggs the eggs hatch exactly when the winter moth larvae caterpillars do so there's always food that system's been disrupted by human anthropogenic climate change and birds still haven't quite adapted to that system so there's no evidence that bumblebees or wild pollinators would adapt to that system similarly
0: we could hope there's always hope in the autumn I know bees are collecting, getting ready to overwinter. Is there anything different about how rainfall affects them in the autumn because of this special prep time?
1: Obviously, if you're going into winter with less stores, less food provision for yourself, I'm speaking for honeybees right now, but we'll get to bumblebees in a second. If you're going into winter with less flying days, for provisioning stores, you're not going to survive that winter without a lot of help from beekeepers. So you will end up with a lot more feeding of sugar syrup. There's quite a lot of evidence that the nectar collected by bees isn't just for sugar. There are a large number of chemicals provisioned inside the honey that can form a natural pharmacy. So if your beekeeper is giving your honeybees exclusively lots and lots of neat grain sugar rather than flower-based nectars then their resilience to disease is going to be affected as well, as well as just having a net reduced amount of food for winter. One of the things that affects wild pollinators, on the other hand, is nesting sites. Right, so let's just take good old favourite bumbleus terrestris, the buff-tailed bumblebee. That bee in the autumn is provisioning some amount of food, but it's just provisioning for just one bee, the queen, because she's the only thing that survives over winter. So she's going to get enough food In a secure location to feed on over the winter, and then emerge the next year to mate and create a proper colony. That bee and fourteen other British bumblebee species are ground nesting. Very typically, you'll find that in abandoned mice nests are the best site for bumblebees to nest in. There's a lot of factors there, including the smell, as they seem to love. But these are obviously little tiny dugouts in soil below ground level if you have got heavier rain more and more flooding occurring then the number of those nests they're going to be destroyed due to flooding and that's going to severely impact the survivability of those queens over winter because she's not going to wake up she's not going to leave her nest in the middle of winter because it's flooded she'll just die in that nest which is obviously quite unpleasant to think about pull back one peace
0: So increased rainfall is just another struggle for bees and pollinators whose diversity and abundance is already in decline. What do you see as the biggest threats to bees?
1: Acutely, so immediately, agriculture. Agricultural practices, be it uh, huge monoculture of, of food plants so that flowers only exist on that site for about a week a year, or pesticide applications Obviously, insecticide applications, neonicotinoids, very direct, very acute impact on bee health. Herbicides, which are applied the factor of 10 times as much as any insecticide, possibly 20 times as much, they impact the wildflowers. If you spray a bunch of weed killer, weeds are what bees eat. So there are going to be less flowers because of spray. But there's also this really fascinating side of things that I'm currently looking into, a number of other researchers in the UK are looking into, where specifically glyphosate, where if it's ingested by bees, kills off a number of the sort of core bacteria that live in their guts. And those bacteria are symbiotic to the bees, so they help the bee digest food. And they're eating glyphosate, which kills off those bacteria and basically gives them dysentery. So they can't digest food as well it makes them a bit poorer. it makes them more susceptible to other diseases. And then there's, even within the UK, we can look also internationally, agricultural practices leading to clearing of existing wild habitats. So.
0: Thank you. I want to talk about something a little bit different now. You led a very interesting project called the Bee Box. Can you tell us a little bit about still that? Still leading
1: it, <laughs> still going. It's a lovely little project. I feel really happy about it. It has a sort of origins in Blue Peter, Heath Robinson style stuff you can do for your garden. So it's an artificial nest box for bumblebees, which when I looked into it, I was kind of shocked that no one's really tried to do it before, at least not properly. So essentially, you want to put a a box, you want to put a little nest box for birds or bats in your garden. You can buy those. There are millions of them available everywhere. You want to do the same thing for bumblebees. You basically get an old clay plant pot, turn it upside down, and leave it in your garden and hope for the best. (laughs) There's no consideration for what bumblebees need. There's no consideration for longevity. There's no consideration for the very, like, tree bumblebees versus ground nesting versus subterranean bumblebees. There's all these very specific things. So, what I did, I partnered up with researchers here at Lancaster in the engineering department who are very smart and can listen to my rambling about so it needs to be this shape and it needs to be able to go here and turn it into a 3D printable design. So that will basically build virtually a series of different chamber sizes, box sizes, shapes, connectors, fasteners, all that stuff. And then we'll use this technique called additive manufacturing, which is basically what 3D printing is and just fire off hundreds of different designs to test how bumblebees respond to it. It's just amazing. The idea is long-term that we'll be able to mass-produce nest boxes for bumblebees, which, people one, people can have in their gardens. Two, researchers can actually do proper experiments on bumblebee behavior, because we don't have an artificial equivalent of what a wild bee nest looks like to test bees with. And thirdly, we can actually install these as... Commercial products. So, horticulturalists, people who grow food in greenhouses, they buy hundreds of thousands of artificial bumblebee colonies every year for pollination. And they buy that many because they have to keep replacing them because the boxes they buy are not great for bee survivability. So, this, we're currently working with a number of companies in the UK who are interested in commercial versions of our bee box for their greenhouses. That will last ideally longer than two weeks. Um, And then the last one is just a, a paired system with existing conservation approaches for bumblebees. So we want to keep people planting wildflower strips. We want to keep hedgerow restorations, keep tree planting, and then pair that with we're going to give you a bunch of boxes for bumblebees to nest in so that you can give them food in the form of all these trees and flowers, and you can give them somewhere to live in all of our boxes.
0: That is a wonderful project. There's a YouTube video where you can see the bees inside the bee box. So we'll post that in the show notes so everyone can enjoy their sitting there in their little box. It's super cute. Tell me what your favorite bee is.
1: My favorite bee is Bombus monticula. It's the bilberry bumblebee.
0: And why is this one so special?
1: It's reasonably rare, and my first job after completing my PhD was to do pollinator surveys in Ingleton, in the Yorkshire Dales, and that was the first rare bumblebee species I ever found that was paid to find. <laughs> it's also <laughs> adorable. It's a tiny little orange bottom with lovely white stripes. It's just a very lovely looking bee.
0: That's great. Anything else you'd like to share with us about excessive rainfall, flooding, or the climate crisis as it relates to bees?
1: We talk about bumblebees. We talk about honeybees. We talk about solitary bees sometimes, if we're lucky. They're not the only pollinators. We have moths. We have flies. We have bats in some parts of the world and birds that do it. They are all threatened by climate change. Anything that impacts a flower of any kind will have a knock-on effect because the pollination system isn't super resilient. It's a very delicate balance because it involves multiple species interacting. So we have to be very careful with the system that we've been blessed with in the form of pollination because we we keep taking little bits out of the system. We keep destroying just little tiny bits at a time and there will be a time when that little change is just a bit too much for the system to handle. And that scares me. Thank you.
0: <laughs> the entire pollination system is threatened by climate change. Thanks so much to Dr. Philip Donkersley for his insights on how damaging flooding can be to bees and their habitats. What was really interesting to me from this discussion was how important trees are to bees, beyond the obvious fruit-bearing ones. Don't forget to check the show notes to watch his bee box video. And while you're there, why not sign up for the Bee's Knees newsletter? Twice a month, you'll get all the details on the latest show. You'll find all this good stuff, plus the transcript for this episode, at thebeesknees.website. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please follow the Bee's Knees wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend. It means a lot not only to the show, but also to the bees. Until next time, keep buzzing.